Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and that was London, as the clock struck midnight to take the UK from Sunday night to Monday morning. Freedom Day. We begin this morning in the United Kingdom, where England is poised to loosen uh, all of its COVID-19 restrictions, despite the UK recording the highest number of new infections in the world. We have to balance the risks. The disease, which the vaccines have reduced, but very far from eliminated, and the risks of continuing with legally enforced restrictions that inevitably take their toll on people's lives and livelihoods, on people's health and mental health. In the UK, more than 1,200 experts and doctors have spoken out against the government's plan to allow COVID cases to increase, which they say borders on the criminal. The government has come up with a strategy which actually wishes to get people infected now, uh, during these summer months in the UK, and get that infection and the hospitalisation and the deaths over with. We must be honest with ourselves that if we can't reopen our society in the next few weeks, when will we be able to return to normal? Hundreds of people were in that club, but in the previous 24 hours, 54,000 people were diagnosed with COVID-19. The Delta variant of the disease has spread like wildfire. The government itself predicts daily cases could rise above 100,000. Meanwhile, just a hop, skip and jump away from us... New South Wales has recorded its highest number of community COVID cases this year as Sydney siders endure a third week of lockdown. COVID is also ravaging Australia. New South Wales is seeing nearly 100 new cases a day and for a while they've really considered following the UK's lead, abandoning restrictions and hoping its vaccinations have done the trick. The thing is, the advice from scientists as to how to deal with COVID is reasonably similar from country to country. New Zealand, Australia and the UK have their differences, but they all have access to top-level epidemiologists and virologists who know how these things work. So why are the responses so different? Well, because the scientists aren't the ones in charge, the politicians are. Today on The Detail, how the politics of two of our closest allies are affecting COVID responses in the UK and Australia. This is against the overwhelming weight of scientific advice in the UK. So looking at it from sort of a political perspective, why is this happening? Well, there's a short answer and a long answer. Robert Patman is a professor of international relations at Otago University School of Politics. The short answer is that the UK has had quite a successful vaccination programme. About 90% of all adults in the UK have now been vaccinated. And the government wants as soon as possible to return a sense of normality to a country of 65 million people. The Johnson government wants to declare that Britain is open for business and also wants to state the claim that it's leading the world in recovering from COVID-19. But the longer answer is that this government hasn't been particularly scrupulous in observing medical and healthcare professional advice about COVID-19. Remember, in January and February last year, 2020, Mr Johnson didn't actually attend the first five emergency meetings which were devoted to 
the question of COVID-19. Five COBRA meetings during the crucial period when yep. the virus was arriving in January and February. The Sunday Times said the Prime Minister did not attend any of them. Is that true? Uh, he didn't, but then he wouldn't, uh, because most COBRA meetings don't have the Prime Minister attending them. That is the whole point. The government pursued a strategy uh, known as herd immunity. The government has denied that it pursued this, but Dominic Cummings, who's now out of favour with the government, who was then uh, Mr Johnson's uh, special adviser, has indeed confirmed that was the strategy. The point is it was seen as an inevitability. You will either have herd immunity by September after a single peak, or you will have herd immunity by January with a second peak. Those are the only two options that we have. And it wasn't until quite late in March, I think it was around about March the 20th, 23rd, that Britain actually had its locked, first major lockdown. So I suppose there's a bit of a track record here of the Johnson government wanting to keep political decisions very much in its own hand, not wanting to be too much hostage to medical advice. Unfortunately, that meant that in the course of 2020, Britain incurred more deaths from COVID-19 than all other European countries. The record at the moment, as we speak, is about 128,000 deaths. Against that, it was one of the first to get a vaccination programme going and uh, is keen, I think, to push on with that. And I think the opening up of Britain, which is against most medical advice, particularly since the cases of COVID-19 are surging as we speak, in recent days they've been up to 52,000 a day and more recently 48,000 new cases a day, that's not a good look, and we do know from the experience of other countries like the Netherlands and Israel that premature lifting of restrictions can result in even more draconian measures being necessary a month down the track or so. The United Kingdom's plan, according to microbiologist Dr Susie Wiles, is, again, based around attaining a kind of herd immunity. Vaccination uptake in the UK has been excellent. About 70% of people have had at least one shot and about 54% is fully immunised, many of them older people and those with underlying health issues. It's also coming up to summer in the Northern Hemisphere, so people are going to be spending more time outdoors. Wiles says Boris Johnson's hope is that the virus will run rampant through the unvaccinated young, those least likely to be seriously affected by it. Of course, some will still be seriously affected. As Wiles writes, some will be left with chronic health problems, some will die. But the UK's hope is that when winter comes around, the island will have achieved something close to herd immunity. As we heard before, the plans outraged hundreds of scientists whose advice is very different. But that's what governments do, right? They get advice from experts and then they make a call. Let's be quite clear about this. The Johnson government has been quite cavalier. Why? Well, it's a populist government. That is to say, it subscribes to an ideology that it's uh, for the people, the clear representative of the people. It has been responsible for taking the UK out of the European Union. And also, it believes that states run the world not big organisations. It was reluctant to take on board some of the advice that uh, the WHO gave the British government early on. The WHO was always sceptical about the British herd immunity approach and eventually the, Briti the British had to move towards 
a strategy of suppression, which it had resisted. It had really gone through a strategy of mitigation early on. The reason, I think, because it's a populist government, because it believes it must, if you like, represent the people against the establishment, it is suspicious of, if you like, international organisations. And the other thing is, it's also populists tend to be suspicious of experts. Michael Gove, during the campaign about taking the British out of Europe, Michael Gove is a key cabinet player in the British government, he was openly uh, ridiculed experts and said what we need is common sense. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts with uh, organisations from acronyms saying... The people of this country have had enough of experts. From organisations with acronyms saying that they know what is best and getting it consistently wrong. Because many experts warn against Britain, the economic consequences of Britain leaving the European Union. Now, what does all this add up to? I, I think this is a government that sees problems in terms of British exceptionalism. Early in the crisis... uh, Mr Johnson said that he believed that Britain's role was to, as he put it, act a bit like Superman, take it on the chin, let COVID-19 move throughout the population until a certain level of immunity was built up. Now, he's abandoned that. But that sort of thinking still frames much of the government's thinking. And what the problem is for the, this populist government in the UK, a big problem, is that it sees problems in compartmentalised terms It has real problems, real difficulties and struggles with problems which, like COVID-19, which do not recognise borders. Mm. And uh, this this seems to be almost a mismatch between the way the Johnson government sees the world and the nature of the problems they're now facing in the world. And, of course, another problem which is analogous to COVID-19, which is developing more slowly but is even more deadly, is, is climate change. I'm reminded, actually, of... I, I'm not sure whether you've seen the film Shrek. I think it's a scene from Shrek where, you know, the king says... Um, Some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I am willing to make. And, well, yes, I mean, uh, this, you're, you know, it's interesting you raise that, ML, because in the last two weeks or so, you've had a number, a succession of cabinet ministers, including the current health minister... Uh, Javid, who's just contracted COVID-19, saying we've got to learn to live with COVID-19. Now, this is a complete contrast to the strategy that New Zealand has uh, adopted in in relation to COVID-19, where we have adopted an elimination strategy based on trying to minimise the prospect of internal transmission. But we have people like Johnson and Javid, the health minister, essentially saying that we've got to learn to live. We've got to just basically ameliorate this problem rather than eliminate it. And the government has also said we must avoid a cure for COVID-19, which is worse than the ailment itself. Mm. In other words, there's a separation in the minds of many cabinet ministers between the health of the economy and the health of people, whereas we've made no such separation in New Zealand. We see the two as extricably intertwined. If we look over the... Ditch in Australia. The state premier Gladys Berejiklian says with 112 new COVID cases, things have reached a critical point. New South Wales has locked down now, and that mm. seems to be their, their strategy from this point onwards is to continue pursuing this elimination strategy, which they have done to, to some success. But certainly it, it seemed that the state government in, in New South Wales was at least considering a similar plan to what the UK is now adopting. Does it feel to you like we are now entering a different stage of COVID response where 
we know more about it. It is not as mysterious as it once was. And therefore, these decisions are being weighed up differently. I'll just say differently. Um, I I think that's true to some extent. But first of all, Australia has handled COVID-19 very well. Mm. Uh, This has to be said that Australia and New Zealand have come out of this crisis very well. And, and, And both countries, interestingly, have not learnt from Europe or North America which are areas which those countries tend to look to historically. Instead, they've learned uh, from the successful experience of countries like uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong and South Korea and China and that influence thinking in both Australia and New Zealand. Mm. Now, we have had this recent outbreak, as you alluded to, in Australia, but the reaction by the Australians suggests another severe uh, lockdown. So there's a bit of a learning curve going on here. I think both New Zealand and Australia, obviously they want to open up as soon as possible, but I think it's going to be a measured process because I think they'll be anxious to link up with those countries which they believe are listening carefully to the science. And that's one of the distinguishing things about New Zealand and Australia during this crisis. They've both taken advice, scientific advice from healthcare professionals very much on board and listen very carefully to it. We won't see the effects of these harsher restrictions until at least five or six days because there's a lag in the data. So we don't expect to see that number shift uh, massively for the next uh, few days, but we still want the community to be more vigilant than ever before because I'm convinced that working together, we will start to see those numbers nudge. And that's not always been the case in a country like the UK or during the Trump administration in the United States. In Australia is different also, though, in a sense, isn't it, because of the political structure there. I mean, you look, at, for example, at um, a state like Queensland, mm. which has had a very cautious COVID response and has performed exceptionally well. It's not an entirely centralised decision-making system in Australia, is it? No, that's absolutely right. And um, it's no secret that some parts of Australia have been very frustrated by the fact that the transmission, when it's occurred internally, has come in from other states who haven't always been... uh, Some citizens of Melbourne were quite frustrated when there was the recent outbreak because they think it had been caused by the cavalier behaviour of Australians travelling across state boundaries. And it is a a big... It's a federal system. It's more decentralised. And and so the, it's more difficult to manage in the way we've been able to in New Zealand. Nevertheless, though, while there have been setbacks, and there have been setbacks in New Zealand as well, mm. at the end of the day, Australia has only lost 914 people through COVID-19. And that's still a very good performance. And Australia's performance in handling this COVID-19 has been widely admired, and as has New Zealand's. How would you characterise our response at the mo- where we are at the moment from a political point of view? Are we just sort of slowly, slowly working along, hoping that the vaccine rollout goes on, hoping that nothing really crazy happens in the in the interim kind of period and, and just sort of keeping our fingers crossed that there aren't any nasty surprises around the corner? Well, I think there's a little bit of, of that aspect to it. I think the Prime Minister's been very realistic. She's basically keeps saying... No one is safe in New Zealand or elsewhere until everyone is safe globally. And so the government used the opportunity of the recent APEC meeting to impress on other leaders uh, such as Joe Biden, such as Vladimir Putin, uh, such as Xi Jinping, 
the need to have a concerted strategy to deal with COVID-19. So I think New Zealand's approach is measured. I think as vaccination deepens in a number of developed countries, although less so in developing countries, um, we could perhaps within a year, so, a year or so see, if you like, reasonably stable air bridges or bubbles built between uh, various actors in the international stage. But I think it's it's going to be a patient opening up, reopening, and I don't think this government, I don't think it will want to uh, emulate the British government in the way it's handling the situation at the moment. So we are going to be looking for partners that in many respects have had a successful record in handling this crisis to date, uh, allied with the fact that a number of countries, but even the ones that haven't been so successful, they have been effective in getting vaccination up. And so I think there is the prospect of opening up, but my crystal ball is no better than anyone else's, Emil. And I, I politically... COVID-19 is a disruptive event. The world is not just going to go back to how it was. Mm. And, and that's an important point to establish. In a sense, we and many other small and middle-sized states now have an opportunity to reshape this world because, let's be quite clear, in the COVID-19 crisis, the great powers haven't come out of this particularly well. Mm. There's been a void in international leadership. Where was the UN Security Council when this was going on, hardly discussed COVID-19. And as for the two superpowers, neither the United States or China were mobilising or rallying the world against this global threat. Instead, they were trading insults and blaming each other for a, a, a virus, a global virus that neither can control. So I think, in a sense, we are at an inflection point. And how do we go forward? I, I think that New Zealand has an enhanced... Uh, international political position now because of both the way it's handled COVID-19 but also because of its widely admired response to the Christchurch terror atrocity. The New Zealand government has been widely admired because it seemed to have acted with a degree, a large degree of empathy but also a large degree of decisive action and I think it's that, that combination of empathy, the ability to reach out but also an ability to do something decisive about uh, the pain that people are experiencing. I, th I found it very interesting hearing you speak about this will never be over until it's over for everybody. I mean, perhaps Boris Johnson would think of that as being a sort of very passive, fatalistic sort of point of view. You know, you can see him sort of sitting there, grab the bull by the horns and be master of your destiny, that kind of thing, you know. Do you understand that point of view to an extent, to at least to wish to have some sort of say, I guess, in how things go. Yes, I understand that perfectly well. But is, has Britain had more say over its own destiny than New Zealand, hmm. where we have never made a distinction between the health of people and the health of the economy? I mean, look at how the New Zealand economy is performing in relation to the British economy. Um, we've bounced back after severe lockdown at an early stage uh, in a more impressive fashion than the UK. Now, admittedly, the scale of the problems facing the UK are bigger. And I don't want to minimise the, you know, the nature of this problem, which is really serious. Mm. But I, I, I think the challenge of COVID-19 is because it's a problem that doesn't recognise borders, we have to seriously rethink about how we do foreign policy. Mm. Many of the problems confronting um, Britain, New Zealand and Australia and other countries, the international system, 
do not recognise boundaries. We're not just talking about COVID-19, we're talking about climate change, but we're talking about problems, the economy, uh, terrorism, certainly environmental problems. So we are, at, at, you know, we are at a bit of a, a crossroads. It's up to nation states to redefine how they uh, understand their national interest. Mm. We have to get to a point where countries increasingly recognise that common problems must be dealt with in a multilateral, coordinated fashion. And I think that's what the point that Jacinda Ardern was trying to make in uh, the meeting with APEC leaders, that we you, you can't just go back to sort of geopolitical rivalry, business as normal, and point scoring internationally, where one nationalism is pitted against another, when in fact such behaviour uh, is actually weakening you, not strengthening you. And I suppose one of the biggest criticisms of the Johnson administration that's been articulated by the medical, many medical people, such as the Lancet uh, Medical Journal in the UK, is that, in fact, the strategy has not strengthened Britain's resilience against COVID that the government's taken. It's actually weakened it. And so if you try to go uh, tackle problems like COVID-19 in a compartmentalised fashion, you're likely to fail in the long run. And this is a real challenge. This is a fundamental challenge to how many countries think about their national interest in an international context. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, it, I think we've experienced a disruptive event that's going to change international relations. That's it for today. I'm Emil Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Professor Robert Patman. Matewa. <laughs>